Please be seated and turn to 1 Corinthians 10. We're in a series called Growing Up Sacramental. We're participating in Christ from birth to death, and we've come to a point of uh, considering what it means once, once you have come of age. What are some of the key battles, the key choices, the key moments of bearing the cross as an adult when we participate in the sacramental life? Today we're talking about sacramental fidelity. Oswald Chambers said this, unguarded strength is a double weakness. An unguarded strength is actually a double weakness in his classic devotional, My Utmost for His Highest. He says, an unguarded strength is actually a double weakness because that is where the least likely temptations will be effective in sapping strength. The least likely temptations will be effective in sapping strength where you're not guarding it. The Bible characters stumbled over their strong points, never their weak points. If Mr. Chambers is right, let's ask this question. What are the unguarded strengths of our life? Uh, the things that we consider our strong points personally, maybe it's virtues that we, sh we show consistently again and again, or it's our strongest relationship. Maybe we consider we have a strong marriage. We don't have to worry about it. We've got strong community. We don't have to worry about it. Where do we drop our guard because things are so strong? Um, what about our church? What are the unguarded strengths of our church or our church tradition? What do we get right again and again to the point where we go, ah, we don't have to worry about that. That's not a weakness for us. Pastor Paul, Paul the Apostle, wrote about an unguarded strength of a church that valued the sacraments. The church loved the gifts of God for the people of God, those visible signs of God's invisible love. Baptism and the Eucharist, they valued them, they valued the grace they represented to the point where they dropped their guard. Their confidence in the sacraments made them complacent. Do you know that that's possible? It gave them a false permission to drop their guard, make compromises, and ultimately what it did is it dimmed their devotion and love for Jesus Christ, who gave them the sacraments. Now, we are a church that values the sacraments. We're doing a whole series on this. And even more so, we value the grace of God that are represented in baptism and the Eucharist and the sacramental life. So how can we avoid the double weakness of the church that Paul was writing to? How can we value the sacraments without dropping our guard? It's a really important question. Pastor Paul's gonna write his passage, his, this part of his letter is written to an urban, a young urban church plant that had a high view of the sacraments. He gives them three things in this passage. First, he gives them a warning. Second, he gives them an encouragement, which only makes sense in light of the warning. And then third, he gives them a call. He gives them a call to their first love. 
to return to their first love. A warning, an encouragement, and a call. Call to action. So um, let's look at the warning. The warning is really, it's a history lesson. It's a sacramental history lesson from our ancestors. So it's not just a story about some people. This is a family story we can't forget. Here's what Paul says in verse one, the following. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our fathers and mothers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. What an amazing account of history. Our history, our family history was sacramental. Our spiritual mothers and fathers in the faith went on a sacramental journey. God covered all of them with tangible forms of grace, tangible forms of salvation. The cloud, the cloud that protected them from Egypt and that led them in the desert was a cloud from God. It was a tangible form of his invisible love to them. It saved them, literally. The waters of the Red Sea that parted for them and then closed up over their enemies was a sacramental gift. It was a, Paul refers to it as a baptism, a baptism of salvation. We can't understand baptism today without understanding what they went through, the Red Sea. They were saved through the waters. They were made sons and daughters through the waters. And then they had a Eucharistic meal. The manna fell from heaven and it fed them. And there was always water available to them, always a rock that Moses could speak to the water would come out and it would, and it would slake their thirst. It was literally life coming from the rock. And the, and the rock, at the end of the day, the rock was a visible, tangible expression of Jesus Christ. God blessed them with these gifts. God blessed all of them with sacramental grace. Every last one of our spiritual fathers and mothers were blessed sacramentally, but most of them God was not pleased with. All of them got the grace, but Paul says most of them didn't respond to it. Verse five, that's the tragedy. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And in this little, in this little verse, there's three layers of tragedy that the sacramental gifts of, of, of the cloud and the baptism and, and, and the food and the water, like, like that was an unguarded strength. And so it became a double weakness for them. All of them got the sacraments, but most of them failed to please God. You know the words that the father spoke over the son at his baptism? With you I am well pleased. Like to hear that from a holy and loving God who created everything, with you I am well pleased, that's the greatest treasure, the greatest thing we could ever hear from him. With you, I'm well pleased. And with most of them, he was not well pleased. All of them got the sacraments, but most of them died an untimely death. They were overthrown. Shorthand, they died before their time. They died. 
All of them got the sacraments, but most of them never saw the promised land, which was meant for them. God had prepared a place for them with many rooms, with milk and honey, and most of them never saw it. Most of them didn't step foot into it. This past Wednesday, I was driving around for a parking spot. I entered an alley which was cleared of snow at first. And with a false sense of confidence in my winter driving skills, I just kept going through. I was like, okay, I can't really turn there. I'll just go through this way. And the snow began to get higher and higher. And I just like, you know what? I've been here before. I've lived here many years. Let's just keep on going. And you know what happened, don't you? You know exactly what happened to me. <laughs> I just like, all of a sudden came to a gentle stop. I couldn't back up. I couldn't go forward. I was stuck. I was stuck in the alley. <laughs> For about three hours, I hacked away at the snow underneath my car. Neighbors came to help. Friends from church tried helping. Cars would start to turn down the alley, and they would see my car, and they would, they would, they would like find a way out. My winter driving skills were an unguarded strength. And now my stuck car had become a warning to all of the other Chicago drivers. Watch out, this could be your future. What happened to our spiritual ancestors? The gifts of God made the people of God complacent, not grateful. It was an unguarded strength, and now their tragic stories are like stuck cars, and we can, whenever we turn down these, these ways that we're tempted to go, we see it, and we're like, don't go down that way. Paul's like, look, the Old Testament was literally written for us and every generation to come. It's not just out there because like, it was as a warning to keep us from going down this way and suffering the same fate. Verse six, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Don't miss this. Our ancestors tasted heaven and desired evil. It's possible to do that. They tasted heaven and desired evil. Tasting heaven is meant to give you a taste of heaven and change your palate. That didn't happen for them. They tasted heaven and they craved evil. They thought they could get away with it and that killed them. And we are in equal danger of repeating the same mistake. Now, Paul is gonna talk about four different evils that they developed a, a, a palate for. And I wanna mention them because I think it might be possible, maybe it's possible that we might develop a palate for the same evil things in 2021. The first one is idolatry. Verse seven says, don't be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink 
and rose up to play. Now this is like eating and drinking for the glory of an idol, or really like living for the glory and the praise of anything that isn't God. And it's so subtle. Sometimes it's obvious, like the occult and witchcraft um, and, and like pagan ceremonies. But sometimes it's really subtle, like giving our passion and our allegiance ultimately to anything that is not Jesus Christ. Even the sacraments themselves or liturgy. It's possible. Secondly, he mentions sexual immorality, verse eight. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 of them fell in a single day. Now, Paul's referring to, he uses a term, it's kind of a broad term for sexual immorality, to capture like any sexual activity, consensual or not, private or public, that is outside of the marriage covenant between a man and a woman a lifelong one, a fruit-bearing one. And so um, it's like anything that falls outside of that. It was really serious. I mean, like 23,000 of them died in a single day. That's the second one. There's third one's like just straight-up rebellion, sedition, rioting. Verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. This came in a time, you can read about it in Numbers 21, where the people of Israel like resisted Moses' leadership. And they started comparing him to Pharaoh. They started comparing God's leadership through Moses with Pharaoh's leadership in Egypt. And they started craving Egypt. And so like they came against it, like they, they resisted it, they rebelled against it in their hearts and with their words and with their actions. And, they, and the serpents bit them unless they looked up at the serpent on the pole. That's the third one. It's rebellion. And then, so there's idolatry and then sexual immorality and then rebellion. And then finally just grumbling, which, you know, let's be honest. You know, in the last few weeks, I've grumbled. <laughs> Verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. So think about it this way. Have you ever seen someone open a gift and they're like, mm, thanks. <laughs> like, it's not quite good enough, is it? You know? And it's possible to develop that, like, God, your gifts are not good enough for me. Your gifts are not good enough for me. This life is not good enough for me. And it's possible just to sour. The bottom line is this. The sacraments are not magical charms to let us do or say or think whatever we feel like doing or saying or thinking. You guys ever played Super Mario Brothers? You ever played Mario Kart? You know that star? The star falls on you. You glow, you're transfigured. You can do anything you want. And you're like, yeah, like, Nothing can touch me. The Corinthian church thought that the sacraments was like a magical charm. It falls on you, 
and transfigures you, and you can kind of do whatever you want. You're invincible. That's not what the sacraments are. They don't protect us from the consequences of our own actions and choices. God pours his grace out on us liberally. And he gives us, he's giving us the strength to obey his will. He's giving us the strength to endure temptation and say no to idolatry. He's giving us the strength and, and, the, and the, the grace to fulfill our call to bear his image and to become fully human. He's not doing it to protect us from the choices of turning away from him. Our spiritual ancestors had a bad track record of getting that wrong. And now, for us, the stakes are even higher. Like, we could look back at this and think, well, God was harsher back then, or the stakes were maybe a little higher back then, but for us, in a season of grace, it's just different. But look at verses 11 and 12. These things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he or she stands take heed, lest they fall. We are living at the end of the ages in God's salvation plan. Now, we don't know when Jesus Christ will come again and wrap up history, but we are living in the culmination of history, of God's history, of God's story. It's like the last 90 seconds of the basketball game when it's tied. It's like everything comes down to this now. Forget about the first quarter, or at least take the lessons from the first quarter. Things, the stakes are higher now. We're almost at the end. Or it's like the part of the novel where you can't stop reading because it's the very climax of the story. You know, like, well, Frodo actually, now that he's at Mount Doom, like he spent all this work to get here, will he actually drop the ring into the fire? Or will he take it for himself like Isildur? It's like, it's all coming down to this moment. And it is, it's all coming down to this moment for you and me. This is our time. We're at the end of the ages. We're alive, we're alive in Christ for those of us who, who have said yes to Jesus. Will we read our spiritual history and, and, and respond, take heed, take heed, pay attention, stay awake, stay alert, watch out. It could happen to me. It could happen to you. It could happen to us. The Oswald Chambers passage that I referred to earlier sounds like it could have been written to Christians who have lived through COVID. He says this, you may have just victoriously gone through a great crisis, but now be alert about the things that may appear to be the least likely to tempt you. Beware of thinking that the areas of your life where you have experienced victory in the past are now the least likely to cause you to stumble and fall. Where are you feeling strong? Where are we feeling strong? So here are two questions for us to like digest this warning together. First question is this, around the sin of omission. Have the liturgy and the sacraments acted as a substitute for love? Love of God, love of neighbor. 
have the liturgy and the sacraments been a substitute for love, like real love, and you know what real love is, for God and neighbor. Pastor Andrew Arndt says this, part of the reason that many people like liturgy is because it helps them keep a safe distance from the immediacy of a holy God. Liturgy will not protect us from lethargy. Liturgy will not protect us from lethargy. And it's no substitute for love at all. Have our hearts become cold to our neighbor? Because we have the sacraments. Have our hearts become hard to God? Because we have the sacraments. Sins of omission. What about sins of commission? And this is more what Paul was referring to directly in those four things. Are there any unrepentant evils in our hearts that we give a pass to when we approach the table? Has God's grace for us become a cover? Has it become an excuse for our own disobedience? What do you love? The, some of the earliest church pastors taught the, their Christian flock that they were putting themselves in danger of demonic harassment when they gave themselves to anger, when they gave themselves to a desire and a lust to, to sort of amass wealth, when they gave themselves to witchcraft and paganism, and when they gave themselves over to sexual immorality. And they were just like, watch out. You're like, well, we gotta watch out too. We have Jesus, we have the sacraments, we have the liturgy, but we, we gotta watch out. Has it made us complacent, lethargic? Let's be warned this Lent, an unguarded strength is a double weakness. That's the warning, we've gotta hear it. But we also need an encouragement. We need an encouragement. And Paul, can't bring himself to give a warning without an encouragement about God. Verse 13, look at it together. This is for you. This was written for you. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man or woman. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God is faithful. He's trustworthy and he loves you. He's ready to help. He's ready to forgive your sins this very morning for the first time or again. He can help us endure what remains of the trial we are currently in and help us do it faithfully so that when we come to see him face to face, he will look at us and say, well done. <laughs> well done, Emmanuel, and well done, you, well, I'm so proud of you for how you lived in 2021. I am so thankful for the way you repented and lived faithfully in Lent after a year of COVID. You know, when my car was stuck this past Wednesday, I eventually had to reach out for help. The shoveling didn't work. The pushing didn't work. We got it like an inch with all of our might. We worked with all of our might. And it was like, an inch. I had a call for help. I need power from the outside. So I got the number of Kenny, 
an amazing individual. He's a, he's a neighbor um, of some of our members. And um, he has equipment. He's got the goods for snow. And he pulled up, he pulled right up next to my car with his powerful car. And he, he attached our cars. And then he, he like, uh, he went in reverse. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And it was like my car got free and it was amazing. I was like, thank you so much. And he said, um, you know, if you're my friend's pastor, you're family now. You're family. And I'll, I'll always be there to come get you. Even if you're, no matter what kind of mess you're in or situation you're in, if you're stuck anywhere, even if it's an hour away, call me and I'll be there and I'll come get you out. And when I remember him saying that to me, I can't help but think about verse 13 and the promise of it. God is faithful no matter what situation you're in, no matter how messy it is, no matter how terrible it is, no matter how, how, what a disaster you've made of your life or I've made of my life, God is faithful. He will be there. We're his kids and he will come get us and he will come, he will come rescue us and get us unstuck. No matter what trial we're enduring, he will be right there every step of the way helping us endure it one minute at a time, one microsecond at a time, giving his grace and making it sweeter and richer than it needs to be. And that's what we remember and participate in when we take the sacraments. Do you need greater love for neighbor? God is faithful. Just call out to Jesus and ask him to, for you to have the strength to love your neighbor like he loved the Samaritan woman and the, the woman who was bleeding for 12 years and uh, everyone he loved in his life, the people who betrayed him and denied him, he loved them to the end and he can help you love your neighbor too. Do you need to repent of false loves? Call out to Jesus. You're his kids, you're his family. Do you need just a heart for God again? Do you need to be softened again? Do you need to be made clean again? Call out to God. He is faithful. He'll come get you. Paul gave us a warning, and then he gave us an encouragement, and finally, he gives us a call to step forward. This is a call for each one of us, whether we're here as a Christian or not, and that is that we need to flee into the arms of our beloved our beloved Jesus, flee into the arms of our first love. Verse 14, in short, comes down to this. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee out of the arms of your false lover into the arms of Jesus. Idols, what are idols? Idols are false lovers. We don't belong to them, and they don't belong to us. They promise a lot, and they woo and tempt us a lot, but in the end, they take everything and leave us with nothing. That's how it always turns out, 100% of the time. It works for a while until it doesn't, and they don't love us, and we should not love them. They simply want to take your best years and your best strength. And Paul says, leave them in the dust. Jilt them, break it off, flee, don't negotiate, don't hem and haw. 
Don't spend time writing a Dear John letter. Flee, take the way of escape, be drastic, be rude, be resolute. Flee from idolatry, beloved. Listen to this like relational language. Can you hear the relationality of this language in verse 16? The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a koinonia in the blood of Christ, a participation is how it's translated, but this, you've maybe heard this word koinonia, maybe you went to, you sang koinonia songs at a koinonia camp, okay? It's all about connection and relationship and participation and, and being bonded. This bread that we break is, is it not a koinonia in the body of Christ? It's family language. Early church preacher John Chrysostom says that when we hold the communion chalice in our hands, we do what lovers do. We're turning aside from all of the distracting false lovers and we're taking our beloved Jesus's face in our hands and we're saying, I only have eyes for you. We do what lovers do. I only have eyes for you, Jesus. You're my one and only, you're my first love. We bless his name. We fix our eyes on his name. We listen to what he has to say. We pour out our love for him liturgically and in song. And then when we take the communion chalice, we say, thank you for pouring your blood out for me so that I could be forgiven and made one with you. Verse 17, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. When we partake of communion, we're not only running into the arms of our beloved Jesus, our bridegroom, we are running into the arms of the bride, the church. And we're saying, she's mine, I'm hers. I belong to the body of Christ Idolatry, and I've seen it again and again, will always alienate us from the body of Christ. It will alienate us from the table eventually. It will alienate us from the one body eventually. Yet we can always come resolutely back into the communion, even as we take communion, as we take of the bread. And I know it's a wafer right now, and it's not the same, and I know that we will eventually get back to the one wafer, or the one bread, the loaf, and it will be so sweet. Every time we take the bread, we remember that we are one body. We are not alone. And that we can't love Christ and hate his church. We pledge our fidelity every time we take the bread and the wine. I only have eyes for you, Jesus. This is a moment for our affections to be turned again to Jesus. He is the love of our life. He is our bridegroom. He deserves our affections. Can you hear the Lord pleading with his people? in these words from Psalm 81. Oh, Israel, if you would but listen to me, there shall be no strange God among you. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. 
Oh, that my people would listen to me. He would feed you with the finest of wheat and with honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. At the end of the day, our greatest act of worship is to let God satisfy the parts of our souls that we have let idols satisfy. It is one of the greatest ways we can ever honor God is to let him satisfy us, to open wide our mouths, the mouths of our soul that look for meaning and satisfaction, purpose, security, and belonging, and say, only you ultimately can satisfy this. Everything else is a derivative and needs to be put in its proper place. Strange gods cannot feed those mouths and they cannot be given quarter in our lives or in our church. So there was this subgroup of the Corinthian church that thought of themselves as like super sophisticated. They were like really smart and really sophisticated, really nuanced, and they thought, you know what? Let's have the Eucharist, and then let's go to our work parties. And the issue was the work parties, because at the work parties, you would get a lot of business done which is helpful for the bottom line. But at those work parties, there would be excessive eating and drinking in the name of a God, a false God. And a lot of times, there would be, there would be sexual activity. And it was, um, uh, it was an injustice. Most of it was an injustice, but it was working for them. Injustice works for some people. That's why it keeps going. And they were like, let's just keep doing this because it, it works. And Paul's like, that's the cup of demons. That's the cup of demons. That's the table of demons. And maybe they were too sophisticated to like believe in demons because they were like, hey, if it's an idol, <laughs> it doesn't exist. There's only one God, right? If they're not God, then it's all make-believe and pretend. Plus, we have the magical sacraments to protect us from anything bad that could happen. Paul pleads with them, return to your first love. Verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? And he just has the boldness to suggest that demonic powers were at work. It's just worth saying, demonic powers work. It works. It, they have some bent spiritual power to make anything work for a while. They offer spiritual, you can have a spiritual experiences without the Holy Spirit. Did you know that? You can have a spiritual experience with an unholy spirit or, or a whole group of unholy spirits. And it can seem really powerful and really work. And sometimes it happens in a church. but it never ends well. It only provokes the Lord to jealousy and puts us in spiritual jeopardy. So let's not be as sophisticated, quite frankly, as these early Corinthians. Let's not say with them, it's not a big deal, I can handle it. It's time to let Paul's clarity cut through the fog so that we can return to our first love. I don't know what, the Holy Spirit has put his finger on for you. Is there something? 
don't delay. It's time. It's time. Don't give false gods any quarter in your life. Break it off now. Confess it. Confess the addiction and get healing prayer. Break off the relationship. It's time. Confess coldness. Confess spiritual lethargy. Turn to your first love. As we heard in the gospel reading, Jesus went into the desert like our ancestors. He went having passed through the waters and he went in being fed with bread from heaven through the word of God. And he battled Satan and he won. And that was also written down for our instruction and our encouragement. But it's not just a head game. Jesus is here and he's ready to help you and he's ready to help me and he's ready to help us battle in the desert and emerge victorious and be ready for a season of spiritual harvest on the other end. Jesus can teach us how to endure. He can teach us how to return to our first love. He is faithful and true, and he can teach us how to be faithful and true. So let him feed you today. Take him into your hands and say, I only have eyes for you. As you partake of the sacraments, return to his heart. He has united himself to you and he will never leave you and he will never forsake you. Let him feed you with his heavenly bread and gush water from the rock. Let him lead all of us to the promised land where we will feed on him forever. An unguarded strength is a double weakness, isn't it? But in Jesus, we have a secure salvation and our first love offers the, us the forgiveness and the satisfaction and the way forward that each one of us needs to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.